Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Great to be here, Rob. Paul, it's always good to see you, and welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Dental Amigos. Today, we're joined by Jared Duckett and Bill Ladd. Jared and Bill are partners and co-founders of Duckett Ladd LLP, which is a dental-specific accounting firm serving dentists nationwide. Their firm strives every day to make the lives of their team members and clients better, they realize many dentists struggle with the business side of practice and feel chained to the chair. So their team provides guidance to help dentists create the business that supports the life they want to live, which is very similar to our mission yeah, on this sure. podcast, Paul. Exactly. And we've uh, both had the pleasure of meeting and, and working with uh, with these guys. So I'm excited to have them on the show today. And we're going to chat about mistakes and missed opportunities when people are buying practices and then uh, talk a little bit about post-purchase, where things go wrong and maybe where expectations were not properly aligned, as you like to call yeah, it, Paul. Yeah, right, exactly. Managing expectations. And, you know, what happens when you bring the baby home, right? Right. Uh, that's where the fun begins. Yeah. So I guess... Nobody it, comes to help you watch your practice. They come to help you watch your baby, but not your practice. <laughs> we need help from these guys. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. And it's funny because like in our office too, like we're all geared up. It's like, okay, we closed. Great. Good luck. <laughs> right, you know, exactly. congratulations. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and really, um, while in some respects, it's like commencement, right? You know, hey, you graduated, yes. you know, that's it. Well, that is true. That's why they call it commencement. So maybe we should start, instead of calling these uh, closings of these deals, we should call them commencement. Yeah, right? I like that. I, gotta yeah, make a I like that. that. Dental transition commencement. I'm going to tell Anna, April, and David <laughs> that, and they're going to roll their eyes and look at me and say, Rob's lost his mind. <laughs> but um, so uh, without further ado, here are Duckett and Ladd. Welcome, amigos, and thanks for being on the show. Gentlemen, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Rob and uh, Paul. Appreciate it as always. Awesome, guys. Before we dig into the the hard-hitting questions, I would always like to know, uh, you know, what is your favorite nacho topping? And if we were where you, if we were down where you live, where would we get them? And either of you guys can answer, or you both can answer. Mm. So, question for you, clarifying question, Paul. Does does queso count as a nacho? It's a topping, good question. Queso is too boring. That's that? we'll go that with a standard. Queso is is. We'll say that's standard issue on nachos. So. I'm, I'm vegan, oh, man. You're so vegan, I'm, right? I'm going to disagree with yes. that. Yeah, yeah. Vegan Fuck, queso. There, queso. There is some decent but, you vegan know, like queso, Chicken, guac, jalapenos, brisket. Okay, that's a okay, popular fair, one. fair. Then I, I'm going to say jalapenos. I mean, uh, you got to bring the heat when you're dealing with nachos. I agree. I mean, is that... Is that a fair statement? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's Cliff Moore's statement, too. I think this yeah. is a Midwest thing, Paul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nachos. <laughs> I mean, uh, jalapenos, well, no, The Midwest rather. thing is queso. The queso part's the Midwestern thing. I mean, we, we eat queso on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Queso on your queso. It doesn't nachos. matter what. You're, you're, you're talking to two guys in Philadelphia. Who, you know, I think Cheese Whiz <laughs> is, a, is a food group. Yes, so exactly. I, I'm not sure you have us beaten there. Well, Bill, Bill the question is, where are, you getting, where are you getting it from? So I agree. I love jalapenos. Sour cream is probably standard, I would imagine. Um, it doesn't have sour cream. It's an issue. But, Bill, where are you getting your nachos from? I'll see where, where mine is. Yeah, there's a great place in town, downtown. We're in a smaller town in the Midwest, and it's called Maria's. It's been around for a long time. You have really good, just a good menu, uh, but their their nachos are outstanding. I don't, I don't know if they're Elvez. I've heard of the legendary Elvez, and someday I'm going to try that. But, uh, yeah, these are pretty good for uh, – Kind of the middle of the country, uh, watered down, diluted nachos. Nice, they, they are good. When I go on my countrywide nacho tour, I'll stop there. Yeah, same <laughs> thing. I mean, we, I mean, we, we, we agree on most things, and I'll agree on this, Bill. I mean, there is one downtown, but hey, they, they just have the one on the south side now too, Bill. That uh, oh, that's true. You yeah. Check out too. Yeah, it's it's right by my house, so it's uh, it, it's delicious, Paul. Come through, come to Springfield, Paul. We'll take you to Maria's and, and check it out. Importantly, we'll though, how are the margaritas? 
Yes. Yeah. They're they're big, like the fishbowl kind. Oh God. Yeah. Um, you it's know, a good they, serving. They, they, they will they will tide you over. More things sure. should be served in a fishbowl, right? Um, <laughs> before Rob jumps into his question, I want to ask a question, uh, Jared, a question because we, we Rob and I are celebrating back to being in person podcasting. We you know it had many Zoom podcasts, but Jared, you got a chance to come to Philadelphia, meet me in person mm-hmm. after us being on Zoom so many times. So, what was the in person Doctor Nacho experience like? Was I as funny in person? Talk as fast in person? Tell us about your experience. You know, that's a fair question. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you 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 were you, you talked faster than I thought you would, and you were even funnier. I'll, I'll put it that way. Wow, thanks, but I'm Jim. Telling you what, man, I had I had an absolute blast meeting everybody in person. I mean, I don't think every single person there. I don't think I have ever met face to face. So, literally, I had let's say fifty to seventy five people I knew were going to be there, and boom, everybody face to face, and dynamic was awesome. Hey, I mean, that's just, our people in the neighborhood man, thing. I'm you what, Paul? What's that? That's our whole people, people in the dentisting neighborhood vibe that we like to create. Oh, I love it, man. But one thing about you, Paul, is it's hard. It's hard to get like a five-minute, ten-minute conversation. You just buzz around like a tornado in that. Yes, that, that's it. me, right? <laughs> I, 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 I had a small wedding, but I it can be like I can only I, I couldn't. It's like a bride at a big wedding, but I, I really did love it. And thanks for your support. And Rob will be there next time in person. He's been at many in-person nacho events, so he knows the vibe. I'm looking forward to. It. I miss it, and that's uh, it's always fun. You do a great job with all that, Paul. So uh, start with you, Bill. So. Uh, Somebody comes to you. I used to say, you know, they come to your office, but let's face it, that's yes. not really the way the process starts these days. Somebody emails you and says, hey, I found this practice um, and uh, I think it's the one for me. They'll probably tell you that it, they, it grosses $850,000 a year and it's a fee-for-service mm-hmm. practice. Do you think I should buy it? Right. Um, you know, which Paul and I laugh about that and when we see people comment with that scant detail. But you know, tell tell our folks what are some of the things that you guys see where mistakes are made by potential buyers or buyers, or not necessarily mistakes, but sometimes also missed opportunities when they are looking to purchase a dental practice. And again, let's let's start with uh, with your thoughts, Bill. Yeah, so I kind of look at that and almost break it down to the very beginning because Paul you've heard about this Rob you may have too but we kind of look at an entrepreneurial journey that a dentist is on and we actually break it up into six phases and and, you know at some point I could always go over that with you Rob but you know the first two or three uh, are are really designed for those that are pre-acquisition you know and the, the very first phase could be when you're in day one of uh, D1, uh, D1 and you're saying, you know what, I don't want to be an employee. I actually want to own. And you start trying to build up, you know, your bona fides as far as business understanding and trying to you know, get that growth mindset right. But phase two is an important phase, in our opinion, that um, I think most people skip over. And, and that's really what kind of practice do I want? And, and what we tend to find, to answer your question, Rob, is most people skip over really trying to articulate and, and think through strategically what kind of practice do I want? And they go right to phase three, which is I've identified a practice. Is this the right practice for me? So in my opinion, a lot of time they don't have the proper framework because what they have is, is just an opportunity. And that opportunity may be exactly what they would have charted out on paper if they could have envisioned it. But most of the time what we see is it is just that rob it's just an opportunity it's something that's come across their plate right maybe they were associate there maybe not but but really they have no idea or they really have not stopped to think critically is this practice what i want you know is it where i want is it you know is it in the neighborhood i want to be in it, it you know do they do the right types of procedures i mean all these different kinds of questions um that really have never even been asked or are thought to be asked and and so I think it really starts kind of foundationally with not even having a clear understanding of, of what you want. You know, Jared, you can probably jump in and talk about specific, you know, things that we see once they do kind of jump off in this realm. But I kind of even back up a little bit further and say, first of all, we need to figure out what exactly it is, is you want. Jared, I'll let you jump in. Yeah, well, let me just stop you before you, Jared, before you speak. I, I think that's a great point, Bill. I mean, it's hard to know that you got the right thing if you don't know what you're right. looking for. And I think a lot of people really do fall into that trap of, I found this opportunity where the practice is grossing X, you know, right. and yeah. or the EBITDA is Y, and therefore it's good, you know, because it's, you know, 
performing, seemingly performing well from a business standpoint. And again, and I see people posting on on blogs and Facebook groups that you know right. some scant detail, which I'm I'm not kidding when I say it's a it's a six op practice that's grossing nine hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it's a PPO. Should I buy it for this price? And like you know, you have right. no idea if you don't know the detail. But you don't know what they're looking for, for sure. you know. If, if the if the procedures are not transferable, right? Exactly. If the culture is not transferable, yeah. you know. Uh, and I think a lot of people fall into the trap of checking the box, trying to buy the practice that grosses the most or is the most profitable. And, and that's just available as an at the time. to that, Rob, I think a lot of times the reason they have scant details, or sometimes, is because they're getting scant details from the seller. You know, they're having trouble getting good data and good information and you know, have a good feel for that practice. It's just such a unique time because the seller is always going to be a little bit more guarded and, and you know, how they can, you know, interact, how you can interact with the future team. It's just different, you know, in this kind of environment. So well, a what? lot of times they're already starting with, with, you know, kind of a minimal amount of, of pertinent information and maybe the right questions haven't been asked. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. The right questions haven't been asked. And a lot of times people don't know what questions right. to ask. You know, if, you know, if somebody, it's probably not infrequently, I can tell you that people come to us with a signed LOI and it's probably a similar thing for you guys because I know I refer right. people to CPAs that say, I've got a signed LOI and I need to do the due diligence. What do I do now? I'm like, well, who's your accountant? I don't have one. Well, you got to get one, you know? So right. yeah. if you kind of, as a, as a dentist looking to buy a practice, if you get to this point where you are talking numbers and making offers and you haven't asked the right questions, then, you know, you don't know what, what you're getting. And it's hard to, to know what questions to ask if you're not working with right. the right professionals at the right time. I mean, we're, we can all, you know, my office, your office, Paul as well, you know, we can all give great advice if we have the opportunity to give it at the right time. Right. Will we still right. try to help and solve the problems? Sure, but can we provide more value right. if we're involved at an earlier stage? Absolutely, and, and you know, look, through no fault of these people, they shouldn't know what questions yeah. to ask. And, and there, you know, I know Jared's gonna follow up in a minute, but I just wanna add that for a group of people, dentists, who focus a lot on money during this process, they, they do not, understand how much their feelings are involved. So I'll just use an example, and I could use me. Right. If I go to Mrs. Nacho and say, how do I look for this wedding? And my suit's already on, and my tie's tied, and my everything's good, it's gonna be hard for her to say, that's not a good choice to wear, right? So they become emotionally invested in the process before giving people the opportunity to give feedback. So I just think what you said, I know Jared Fob is so key, that day one, D one, and what kind of practice you wanna purchase are just two things that you should be thinking about and exploring before before you become emotionally invested in one practice. And let me say this too, and then it's okay to change your mind right, over yes. time, right? So yeah. like what you might think when you're yeah. D1, D4, three years evolve, out, right. right. You're going to evolve and that's okay. Yeah. But like kind of have an idea, right? Yeah, have, sure. you know, have a mantra and, and, and live with it. Yeah. I'll jump in there too. I mean, exactly what you just said, Paul is spot on. I mean, just jot down some notes here is number one, a lot of people just get married to that first practice that they have the opportunity to buy and they get so emotionally invested in it that you can't tell them anything otherwise than that's, you know, they just think that's the practice, so even true. though you're, you can show them like, Hey, after you buy this practice for X amount and the seller discretionary earnings after you buy it is X, even if that's bad, they're like, I don't care. I'm going to buy it anyway because they're so yeah. emotionally invested. So that's the first, you know, just point I jotted down. But one is I think just overpaying for the practice, you know, as they're, they just don't do the due diligence and let's say it's a one doctor practice and they've, you know, they, they've got the trust built up with that selling doctor. And the selling doctor, maybe to no fault of his own, just says, hey, well, I'm going to sell it for 75% of collections. Well, that might not be, that's not the right metric, in my opinion, to look at a one doctor practice. You need to look at the seller discretionary earnings. So I think the thing that I see all the time is just people just overpay because of trust. And then they just don't really, they don't know what they need to look at to make sure that it's going to cash flow what they need. Or, um, and that's and it. Jared, one, I, I mean, the cash I flow, see, yeah. the cash flow, that's important. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a step, you know, right. people that listen to this show regular are probably sick of hearing me say it, but I can't help myself. I'm going to say it again, you know, doing a cash flow right. analysis, projected cash flow analysis before any business decision you make in your dental practice is crucial. Right. You are 
buying into a practice, you have a partner yeah. buying into your practice, you are purchasing a practice, you're hiring an associate. You know, you can quantify what that decision should sure. look like, you know? And again, my favorite analogy with that, and I'll say it again, if you haven't done that, then you are picking what is behind door number two. And, you know, <laughs> and, and the people that truly, really step in it when it comes to this stuff, they're the people, they don't make it to me, they don't make it to you guys, uh, Jared and Bill. They never, they skip this step. I mean, I don't know how you could buy a practice and then and, and just have an expectation as to how much money you're going to make if you haven't had professional advice and somebody crunching the numbers to say, this is reasonable. I mean, and because oftentimes, yeah. again, I'm not going to throw mud at brokers, right? Um, I like I'm brokers. Here, right? <laughs> I'm sitting across the table from my very best friend broker. Um, and But... Um, they'll, they'll do one too, you know, but as we, you know, we all know, but here we'll let the listeners in on a little secret. You can manipulate numbers. You can manipulate charts. You can put together fancy prospectuses and nice valuations that come up with these yeah. numbers and that all ties together until, you know, Jared and Bill look at this and say, you realize that this valuation is based on projected earnings that are increasing at 10% yeah. a year. Like right. that's impossible. The yeah, practice right. never done yeah. that. And you're like, well, the whole thing just kind of unravels. So those people that skip that step, I mean, wow, you know, like they're just, they're going it's, blind. It's irresponsible to them and their family. And they, you know, one of the things I was at my dental office the past couple of days, you know, full contact arts and crafts. And maybe a question people just think about if they're listening is, is making the most money possible even the most important thing to you? Because that might come at the expense yeah. of your morale. So when you have a dentist who says, I want this practice because the, the owner's making $500,000, what are they doing to make that? I'm a big Gary Vee fan, and he talks about how many people that he's worked with over the years who were number twos and threes at companies went and bought their own company and became miserable. And it's not an exact parallel, but I think sometimes just there's – they don't really look at this thing big picture and what it is like to dentist day in and day out. And I always say, both you guys, unless we come up with some sort of fantasy camp, neither of the three people on this phone are going to do a class two composite. So you're never really going to truly know that that challenge it is to dentist every day. And I just think that you guys bringing up this in this sequential process is so valuable to your clients because at least they're thinking about this. Well, and let me jump in there real quick, guys, because I can marry the, the two into a worst-case scenario. Let's say that, that you slide into ownership, and you're actually making less than you were as an associate somewhere, mm -hmm. plus you have the stress and the risk of <laughs> yeah. owning a practice. That's it, happened. It We've happens. seen that. Oh, yeah. And that's the burnout. You know, Paul, that's where you see people who, you know, at that point, we, we, we've, we've come across them, and guys, this isn't an age thing. This could be any number of people who are still kind of laboring under that and, and are frustrated and tired and burned out and their bodies worn out. And they're just, they, they're done. And we've seen people, you know, in their thirties who are just done. And a lot of it is because the structure was never right to begin with. And the stress of ownership, it, I mean, we would all agree it's, it's great in some ways, but it's really tough in others. So if you're going to do it and it, and you have that entrepreneurial bent, you want to set yourself up as, as best you can to have the best result. Yeah. Well, I'll say I'll say one more thing. Just talking about mistakes that I've seen is, you know, I'm, I'm going back to one doctor practice example here. But where let's just say one doctor practice and an associate comes in and starts working a little bit, and then it's like, okay, we'll we'll let you buy in. Well, they're like, yeah, that's fine. I'll buy 50% of the practice. But that other doctor's not willing to step aside. They still want to work, and the problem is there's not enough dentistry there's not enough production to go around. Yeah. And so that's one key thing that you need to look at is once you jump in and buy a practice, you're going to be busy, not twiddling your thumbs because you want to make profit off that practice and not just, you know, have a job. Jared, that's a great point. Yeah. And that's, that's like one of the classic examples. I mean, that's a mistake that just doesn't need to be made. I mean, you, you could easily right. do a cash flow projection of what a buy-in looks like after yeah. you have serviced your debt, you get paid for, you know, compensation for clinical services, you know, at the same level that you were, you know, performing right. prior to being a partner, because there's no reason to believe that after you become a partner, all of a sudden your production's going to increase. And then, and then you look at what your profit is going to be. And, and like, that's a number. And, you know, and folks, it doesn't, it's not an exact number, like down to the dollar, but like, like, you know, you guys can get that to a range that it's, it's pretty close that there's a range that'll allow them to make the decision. You know, again, 
if you right. don't do that, you just can't wait until after you've bought the practice and you've been in there operating for a few months to find out how much you're going to make as the buy-in. And the other thing too, in, whether you're buying a practice straight away or you're buying in as a partner, you, as Paul likes to say, you can't unbuy these practices. You can't right. give them back. You can't return them. You can't return no. a baby or a practice. You can't be like, <laughs> this is too much. I also want to add in, because I've been doing a lot of uh, writing on the associate process. And sometimes these dentists, and I can help you guys with dentist insight because I am one. You know, if you said to one of your clients, is, is doing this thing, and the thing might be adding an associate, the thing might be a buy-in, the thing might be something else, is that doing this thing, if it reduces 20% of your stress, but also reduces 20% of your income, is that okay for you? And if they say, no, I wanted to increase my income and reduce my stress, I'm like, well, I'd like to eat nachos and fit into my wedding suit, but that's not going to happen. So I'm either going to have to give up nachos and get into my wedding suit, no one cares, or stay with nachos and be happy like this. And I just think that you, we're solo, a lot of dentists are solo GPs, and we're, they're just thinking, okay, I can just make whatever happens in my practice happen. And they're just uh, unwilling to look, you guys see it, how the numbers stack up against that. Yeah. Well, it's being realistic too, right? You know, and, and, and this is, that kind of goes along with the same mentality uh, that you guys were talking about earlier, where people are just going to proceed no matter what, you know, and, it, and it's about, you know, really going in with your eyes open and you know, listening to your advisors. And when somebody says, this is a red flag, right. you probably shouldn't do this, then you know, you're on notice. You know, if you're looking to pay uh, $900,000 for a practice and your bank is only willing to lend you 750, that's right. a problem, right? You know, so that's telling you something. But a lot of people just get so focused on you know, over committing to the deal. They fall in love with, with the deal. Uh, to the point where you know they're not able to. Uh, I mean, you guys can make use this. You should say you're going to remove short-term annoyance of not liking being an associate for a lifetime of annoyance if you don't buy your right the right practice. So I want to just ask you guys as as we you know uh, switch gears. Let's say someone's bought a practice, okay? Because we deal with transitions a lot, and most of the time they are acceptable, right? Rob and I have talked about the definition of success is not failing. Like Rob says, mm -hmm. you don't wake up every day and say, I'm not going to fail. But most of our, your clients don't come to you about to go out of business. But tell us about some of these early practice owners. When you see them, what are some of their pain points? What are some of the things that they wish they knew be, wish they knew as a practice owner? We don't talk enough about, like I say, when you bring the baby home from the hospital, now what? You got your practice, yeah. now what? Share with us some of your insight as dental-focused CPAs. Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump yeah. in there, and this, this slides right into what we would call our phase four, and, and this is now I have a practice, what next? And I think some of the biggest mistakes we made, and I will raise my hand and say, Jared and I have made the same mistake too, and it took us a long time to figure it out, but there is so many foundational things that we think slide into what we call phase four that really need to be in place if you want to set yourself up. And I'm going to kind of go a little more the real or whatever the world is i know jerry will probably bring it back down to tactical that's why i love him he's you know he and i are just very different but i kind of look at it and i say well what are some of the foundational things that people miss well you know why do you exist you know we've all heard that we we all you know kind of have an idea of what that means but how many really articulate it to the point where you can live it out you know what do we stand for what do we believe what are our core values you know, people just don't hit this stuff. What's our vision? Where do we want to go? There's just so many of these little foundational things that, you know, for our, our practice, it took us years to get this dialed in and, and it set us back for many years beyond that. And, and Jared and I always talked, if we could go back to day one, man, we would have had this stuff all kind of locked and loaded. So we knew exactly who we were going to be as, as in this case, a practice. And, and that's something that is going to help when you're trying to translate this down to new employees that don't know you and don't trust you. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's how a lot of times, unless you've worked in there, they're going to be very uh, hard to win over. But as long as you are very crystal clear in who you are, what you believe and where you're going, those are just three very foundational things that, that I think most people miss and don't develop those till years later. And if people would just pay a little bit of attention to that, that's something I think could, could, completely separates you from any competition in your area. Just my thought. I think that's an awesome point. But especially, with, you know, with practice transitions, though, when we go back to being realistic, if you know what you're all about, what your mission is, and what your core values are, and if you're about to buy a practice that is not consistent with those, then right. you, you probably have to be prepared for some, you know, 
upheaval, so to speak. Right. You know, sure. like it's not. That's right. There's no reason to believe that the day that you bought the practice, that all of a sudden, 30 years of of the culture and the core values of that practice are just going to be like, whoosh, right. you know, changed exactly. mysteriously. Yeah. You know, like and magically to be consistent with what you're looking for. And I think. And, and that, so here's what happens, Rob. It is. What do you do? You slide right into that culture and you just assume it as your own. Right. When you don't act, when you're not very deliberate about being, you know, this is going to be who we are. And, and by God, it's my name. And, and this is where we're going, what we're doing. You will slide right into what the previous doctor did in a lot of ways. For and, sure. And that is something we've seen that to, to your point can really set people back too. is just kind of sliding right in and doing things the way they've always been done which may have been broken from, from if the If I wanted to add it, well, I want Jared. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, when, when was the last time that any of us on here right now made a good business decision in a reactive way right. as opposed to proactively? Right. You know, and, yeah. you know, occasionally, obviously, you do need to react to situations. But if your whole business plan is to be reactive, um, you're really setting yourself up yeah. for a lot of frustration and, and stress over time. I want to add him, Jared. Yeah, I'll jump in there, too. I mean, go ahead, Jared. What, what you said, Bill, spot on. And, and I'll kind of simplify it down to how I see it is we always talk about in our business, you know, with our clients, the four pillars of business. All right. And, and it's basically leadership. Um, number two, your team and your talent. Number three, growth with profitability. And number four, systems and processes. And if you kind of look at it, I used this the other day, like a bar stool, right? It's got four legs. And if one of those gets off a little bit, it's really hard to sit on a three-legged bar stool. It's almost impossible to sit on a two-legged bar stool. And so where I'm going with this is... That's how many drinks you've had, though, too, but that's a different <laughs> yeah. story. Well, that's true. I mean, you don't want to fall off the bar stool. Sometimes it depends on what you're I can just, just play in the bar stool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if you look at it, like what we see is a lot of dentists, they'll buy the practice, and they'll just start running around and working their tails off and run around like chickens with their heads cut off, and not they're just working in the business. They don't ever step back to actually work on the business and look at those four pillars like Bill said, leadership, that's core, that's the core values, your mission, your vision. Number two, maybe they're just running around and they're not taking care of their team. You know, they're not making sure their team's in a good spot and have the right talent on the bus. They're just driving the bus and everybody behind them is kind of talking about them, right? Hmm. Number three, growth with profitability. They're just growing, you know, or I mean, they're growing in the wrong direction and they're growing and actually making less money. And then number yeah. four is the systems and processes. I mean, Paul, you're huge on processes. I mean, when you buy that practice, get that stuff set up at the beginning. Don't run one or two years and then try to fix things. Yeah, systems for your sanity. I think I think dentists, before you buy a practice, they think all these systems are for profit. I'm like, well, profit is nice, but you know what's not what's really good? Not crying inside all day long every day. Mm -hmm. But I want to add in just a, a story that we'll understand. And since I'm the only dentist here, so I've had two awesome children, and Mary we did the majority of the work, right? So when we came home from the hospital, could you imagine Could you imagine looking at a new mom after she put an infant down for a nap, she leaves the nursery, and there's 10 people standing outside that nursery saying, can you make us dinner now? And that is what it is like when you take over a practice, guys. You have to do the dentistry yeah. and the management. And I've said this. It would be great when you took over a practice if you could just work on leadership and management and someone else could do the dentistry. Or... You do the dentistry and someone else works on leadership and management. But the challenging part, much like the quarterback of a football team, is the two go hand in hand. But the quarterback has someone in their ear telling them the plays. So just out of out of awareness and fairness for our clients and people and someone who's been in this state who has acquired a practice, it is exceedingly difficult to both do the technical part and the management part at the exact same time in a new culture that you're taking over. Yeah. So, Paul, what what is your recommendation to new dentists once they buy a practice to to ease into that? Right. Because now you're putting on d additional hats. It's such a great question. And we just talked about this recently. I was in interviewing one of our previous podcast guests, D Dr. D'Angelo Webster, who's like an amazing newish dentist who has this great practice and the startup in the country. And he talked about really being comfortable with your clinical skills before you own a, own a practice, because you have to not. He said when he was a new practice owner, 90% of what he was thinking about was managing it. So if you are stressed out by the clinical part, then that's going to be really good. So my number one tip is to really be 
comfortable with clinical and along the way start to take management style courses, whether it's from a cure dent, whether it's from an accountant, yeah. whether it's it so that you're comfortable because people are going to, your team is going to ask you a lot of weird questions. Why are you raising the fees here? Are we ever going to get off again? You need someone like Robin or team. Are you ever going to get more vacation? So I just think just like a new mom is totally overwhelmed, a new practice owner, it's very overwhelming. So you have to prepare as much as possible with those two things. Well, I think preparation is the key word though, there, yeah. Paul, because right. this needs to happen before you buy the practice. You know, if you think right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. try to figure out this management stuff after I bought the practice and I'm dealing with all these other yeah. things that are on my plate, I mean, the time to do that is before. Like, you know, as you know, we'll stick with the, uh, with the baby uh, analogy, you don't get home from the hospital and pull out the book to say, Okay, now yeah. what do we do? I mean, there's been some discussion about what the baby's room is going to look like, how things are set up. You know, you've you've read about right. what you need to do as a parent, what things are good, what things are bad. Like you're you're ready to go. You don't wait until bang, you know, the bomb has been right. dropped on you, and now we're going to start hunting around to try to find resources and start to avail ourselves as to how better to manage that. Because I don't, I think that people, you know, probably underestimate how much work there is. And look, none of this stuff, you're not necessarily putting people on the moon with it, right. but there's like, there's, there's a human only has so much bandwidth, you know, you could say, yes. well, I could figure out that I could figure that out. I could figure that out. But if all those tasks add up to 30 hours a day, you might be able to figure it all out, but you just physically and mentally can't, you know? Sure. And yes. so it's an unrealistic amount of energy bandwidth mm -hmm. decision making. Right. And I just think this podcast is helping people to just being aware so you can be prepared that this is how it's supposed to feel. And that's why I think bringing a baby home from the hospital is a really good example of that. I want to add in, Joe and, uh, and Rob, one of the things people ask me as a broker is, well, how do I know what this practice is like before I buy it? Because the owner doesn't want me to come in. And I actually believe right. that this is what owners should do. And I would do this for to figure out a way, George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it. So figure out a way to say something like, if it was Rob was the dentist and I was the person, to say to the team that we have Dr. Paul Goodman coming in, he's going to observe one of my clinical things, something that where you can get the potential buyer to spend time in that office and you might not tell the team they're buying it. I'm comfortable with this because I have people observing in my office all the time. Rob talks about you don't want to ask your owner for your employment contract one day, right? Because they know something's up, right? Right, right. right. So I just am just sharing. We can talk brainstorm on it. How do we get the buyer to see how the practice while it's awake, right? How do you get the buyer to see what happens so that they can see if this culture is for them? That's a great point. And, yeah. and we do see clients that say, well, you know, I'm going to buy this practice, but they're not going to tell the staff until the closing. What that's do you right. think about that? Mm -hmm. I think that's a bad idea, right. yes. a very bad idea. Well, and, and let me jump in there. I think that's a great idea, Paul, but I, I kind of come back when we're talking about the stress of business ownership, Jared laid out the four pillars really well. And I think those, are what are designed to to really create the structure that allows you to be an owner. And and, and you still might be a technician, but but you become more of an owner and have have systems and processes that run themselves to profitable growth. But let me hit on the first two. You know, and, and Rob, I agree 100%. We talk about leadership. That's probably the easiest one because that's 100% your control. You know, and, and maybe that makes it hard, but. You know, if you're proactive, if you get the right mindset, the right growth mindset, and you're pouring into yourself to become a better leader, then that trickles down. But but I really want to focus on the second leg Jared talked about, which is people. And I think we could probably all agree as consultants, but also as business owners ourselves, that 95 percent of the stress we're going to have in our lives are probably going to come from people and, and trying to manage people or whatever. That's not fair. One time Rob ran out of legal pads. It was very upsetting to him. So he had to go to the store to Staples and they solved that <laughs> problem. That was a big problem. Right That's what lawyers had. They have legal pads. Yeah. Here, but you know, you're hundred percent right. People quite exhausting. But, so, so, you know, then it comes down to once you're in there and, and you have great ideas about how to observe them before. I, I don't know if I have a, a informed opinion on that. I think it's a great idea if you can do it. But once you're there, I think the, the, idea that I want to put in people's mind that's paramount is you have to understand quickly, you know, what are the roles that you need to take you where you want to go? And do you have the right people in those seats? And if not, are they coachable? Can you coach them up? Or, or do we need to kind of put them on a plan and start trying to find somebody who, who will fit that role? Well, this is where most people, in my opinion, and Jared, you and I did this 
for the longest time is we take a really passive aggressive approach where we kind of grumble around about somebody, but you know, you grumble, right? Right. Paul, <laughs> yeah. the, the say say nothing for a while, then explode on the 50th time. I see there's a book exactly that's right. called, that's a really good way to manage people. Say nothing, <laughs> expect them to do it in your head and then explode the 20th time they, they're late. <laughs> exactly right. And then they're like, well, where the hell that come from? And you're like, well, you know, to me, it's obvious you've been underperforming for six years. Yeah. I mean, this is the stuff that we hear. So I think that what I would encourage people listening who are looking at this is the people side is huge. And if you can dial that in and you can have open, honest, objective feedback to performance and, and clear KRAs and clear assessments of how they're doing to your core values, that is going to set you up compared to your competition like you wouldn't believe. That That's what we've seen. Well, I agree 100%. And it's, it's nobody, I wouldn't say nobody ever, hardly any business owner ever does the common sense thing, which is sit down with your team, the second pillar, and say, this is what winning looks like in your position. Use a hygienist, Bill. You just said KRAs. What are the five KRAs for that hygienist? What does he or she need to be doing in that position to just kill it, just do a great job? And nobody ever tells them that. And the problem is they don't know. But then you're over here as a business owner saying, man, they're terrible. And then you just never tell them. That's the issue. You have to tell them what winning looks like so they can win and set themselves up you know, for success as opposed to just grumble, like you said, Bill, over here in the corner that they suck. And also just make it like we talk about, and not just a lot, with my team, simple strategies for success. And they have to be achievable things like Rob and I golf. So it can't be like, here's all the things to do to shoot par forever and you're a 90s golfer. It's more like, here's things to do that will get you into the 80s if you follow these three things. Dentist, I think because we're taught in just a terrible way are just really guilty of making things too complex and then people don't do anything. Yeah. So, um, you guys rolled us through the first four of the, the six phases. Uh, what's number five. So number five, this is where we've historically always kind of, uh, tended to operate. And, and those are people who have a practice. They have the foundational concepts in place but they just need help. They need help growing, you know, profitably. And, and we see a lot of people that kind of get stuck in between phase four and phase five. And, and a lot of times it's because maybe they don't have some of those foundational concepts of phase four in place, such as clearly defined core values that you're living out every day that you can objectively evaluate people on. So by extension, you don't have the right teams, you know, and, and it's simple that, to understand from our perspective, we see it in the numbers that it's holding you back. So it's really starting to, to try to maybe get the microscope out a little bit and go a little bit deeper into a particular practice that feels like it should be a lot further along than it is, but it's not. You know, and a lot of times, again, it comes down to people, to compensation models. There, there's all kinds of things you can do, some levers that you can pull to try to get and grow profitably. So you can try to hit the end game, which is what we call phase six, which is when you have your exit and you move on. Well, let's just say this too, though. I mean, these are all things that some problems are, are more solvable than others. So I'm guessing right. that some of the phase five problems are a result of mistakes made at phase two or phase three, right? So sometimes right. if you don't buy the right practice or you're not realistic in your expectations, sometimes you can't right. fix it. And I, you know, and I see people a lot that fall into the, the HGTV fixer-upper syndrome, we'll call it, you know, where mm -hmm. they think we can just buy an underperforming practice, get in there, change the paint, put a new kitchen in, so to speak, and uh, turn it right. into something much cooler, and then it's going to be mine, and we'll be able to sell it for more, and yippee, it's that easy, yes. right? It's not that easy. And, you know, we see this a lot with smaller practices where I think people fall into the trap of, it's less risky to buy a cheap practice that is, you know, in our world, underperforming. There's a reason why the practice is cheap. But, you know, if yeah. you if the demographics aren't right, if the culture is not right, if it's not consistent with your mission, the type of procedures that the practice does, like all those things aren't checking out. I got to believe when you get to phase five, you're limited as to what you actually yeah. can do to solve the problem. I mean, you know, just because the practice is, is cheap and underperforming, again, it does, there's no guarantee that it's, it's fixable. There might be things that aren't fixable. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. We, we use the car analogy all the time. You guys use the baby analogy, which I love, and, and then the house flipping. But we use the car analogy, and really what phase five does is what we, we see is really help you clean up your car. You know, you think about you're going to go sell your car tomorrow. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go out and vacuum it? You're going to wash it. You're going to clean the tires, the wheels, all that stuff. That's what phase five doing. We want to clean that car. We want to clean up your practice, get that thing optimized. So then we go to phase six and have that exit. You're going to get the most bang for your buck out of that car, right? But you're spot on, Rob, with what you said, because sticking with the car analogy, let's say in phase three, you go out and take down, where are we at? 2021, a 2004 car. Right. Well, there's only so much mileage left on that right. car. There's only so how much clean you can get that car. Right. So it is. A lot of it depends on the phase three. Um, but phase five, we get that thing cleaned up, and that's the goal is to have that thing optimized as much as possible. Right. But you can't make the engine bigger, right? right. That's you can't, right. You can't roll the odometer back legally, at least, right? You can't <laughs> You can't turn it into a four-door. You can't make it a convertible, right? right? Like, and you also, could, but, one but, of the but, things but you're still limited. One of the things I'll share in someone who has transitions, and even I've had to have my eyes open to, is the dental student hunger games teaches you that it's a contest. And if, you know, everyone's worse than you or better than you. So a lot of times a, a new buyer will buy a practice from a 62 year old and think, ah, oh, that dentist just wasn't a good dentist or he wasn't diagnosing enough. And I would like to share with my listeners, viewers, you guys, that the dentists selling these practices are way better dentists than you think. They're just exhausted. Mm -hmm. So if they're running a $600,000 practice, it's not because they stink at dentistry and they can't do anything. It's because that's the culture of that car and they're the driver of that car. And you cannot just step into that car and make it go faster mm -hmm. and better. And you'll be, you'll be unpleasantly surprised at how good that dentist was and how hard it is to make it that much better, which is why, Amen. like Rob said, buying a $400,000 practice, that's the culture of it. You know, I bought one that was doing 300. Most we ever did was 600. We never turned a million dollar practice. We didn't have expectations to do that. The dentist had a culture that we tried to enhance, but I just think people, dentists have unrealistic expectations, as you guys have echoed, as to what kind of changes they can make. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so true. I mean, that $300,000 practice, the day after you buy it, is a $300,000 right, exactly. practice. And, and again, yeah, that's right. you know, there's, and some problems are fixable, you know, that you can, and that, that's part of the, the process, you know, when you're evaluating practices, you know, why is this practice performing at this level? And, and then what is this, the, the realistic, put that, you know, in quotes, underlined and bold yeah. it, you know, plan to, uh, to enhance it or grow it. And, and again, if, if it's not, if realistically you, there are changes that can't be made, then, you know, there's nothing you could do. I mean, if it's a, if it's a, a two-op practice in somebody's basement, you know, like there is right. a ceiling it's on also what the that's going to do. customer culture. It's funny. I worked at a really nice, I worked at a server many times. I'll make this quick. But I worked at the nicest restaurant in Princeton. My manager said, why don't you ask people if they want a salad course in between the appetizer and entree? And I thought, who would ever want that? But at this place, when I started asking people, they wanted it. But when I worked at a truck stop, if I said, would you like a salad course in between this? They would look at me like I had three heads. So it's the customer base is part of it too. This is the customer base. They either do the crowns or they don't. Maybe yeah. you can tweak it, but don't expect to turn a customer base that, I mean, I'll just use Rob's transformation, which I admire. Don't expect a customer base that eats bacon and eggs every day to turn to be vegan overnight. It doesn't mean they have to turn to be yeah. vegan. That's just what they're used to, right? Yeah. I mean, you know. And I think what's interesting, guys, I think this is a kind of a point that's not counter to that, but I think it's a maybe a corollary. But, but sometimes what we see is that those numbers have dipped you know that, that in other words they're a very good dentist but they are burned out because a lot of the foundational stuff isn't in place so a practice that could have been or had historically been performing higher you know was was on a decline and we've actually picked up clients who were kind of in that decline and just with a little bit of financial clarity and help and some guidance we start seeing their their mindset pick back up and you know see that the the uh performance the financial performance of that practice pick back up and then then it kind of gets back to where you're trying to get back to the market to decide is it a 2004 you know whatever car you said jared Corolla. or is it maybe yeah, it's yeah a is, it, is it a lot nicer car that well, i think bill you're right that's that you say this is the car that's the good deal that's why you have advisors yeah this is a good car yeah. right this is one that is was pre-owned but it has good outlook i mean that's the whole point of what we've been talking and, and about. a lot of times with good advice, Rob, you see it, you can see that. The numbers will tell the story. They'll tell you kind of pretty much where that doctor's head's at. It, it, you know, the, the, 
these selling doctors. So that that's just a corollary that we tend to see sometimes too. Is that a lot of times those prices can you know be deflated and and could be wind up being a good deal. But you still have to consider all the other factors you mentioned, Rob, as far as culture, demographics, and again, is it the practice you want? Yeah, oh for sure, and, and the demographics too. Like that's come up a couple times with me in in, in the past year where. Somebody says, you know, again, they're buying what we'll call a distressed practice right. or an underperforming practice, and you know, if the, you know, then, then the 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 client says in response to my question, well, what's your game plan to turn around? Well, we're going to do this marketing and do all this great stuff, but if the demographics stink, you know, if it's like yeah. you know, four hundred people for right. every dentist, you know, because the reason for the decline is in part there's more competition. You could throw out all the marketing in the world. Right. They're just they're, the people already have dentists. Like they're not going to come to you. It's not going to work, you know. And so, in fact, by spending dollars on that marketing, you're just losing money, you know, because you're not going to be able to actually grow. But it all comes back to just realistic approaches and realistic game plans to enhance the practice. And you know, just because marketing is a thing doesn't mean that because you get in there and market or because you can do. Right. other procedures like that automatically in that practice will not necessarily make a difference. Sure. And and I will say, if you're in right. Miami and you're asking a dentist in Houston for advice when it comes to that, right. you know, whoa, you know, you're going to get what you get, right? And so no, there is no right one answer for all practices. There's no sort of universal right decision, you know, and, and it's all about getting people involved, providing them with the right facts, surrounding yourself with, with good advisors who tell you what questions to ask, get the right data to allow you to make an informed decision about whether or not to proceed, whether or not to proceed at that price, you know, or, you know, again, just, just to walk away. Really good. Yeah, that's the overall well concept. I mean, it's, it's due diligence. Like we said, mistakes that can be made. You have to do your due diligence. I mean, you have to peek under the hood and you have to dig into the hood underneath and see what's exactly in there. Because um, a lot of people don't. They're just like, heck, it's a good deal. It sounds like a great deal, but they never, ever open the hood to see if there's anything underneath there to operate that thing. They just think, man, it's good. Right. It's and, good. and be ready and be ready to walk if you don't like what's under the hood. You know, like it's that, just, that's yeah. the key, Rob. Yeah. That's the emotional intelligence to be able to walk away from a deal that's not right. That's before That's you buy it, though, right? Like it's like you got to uh -huh. do it before you buy it because you can't leave your own practice broken down the side of the road and say someone else come take mm. take care of this. So That's few right. people <laughs> have that muscle. Yeah, you know, I, I have That's clients right. over time that have just amazed me with their ability to do that. But you know, I can I can count them on less than one hand. You know that they, mm -hmm. you know, the ability when all the momentum's going, the bank's got everything lined up, or you've got a broker yeah. who's moving things forward everything's coming together and there's just like this this momentum that is like a freight train yeah and it's really hard to say put on the brakes yeah. and 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 it's in yeah. but the people that are able to do that end up in the right place usually totally hey That's guys right. so um you you suggested with number six is but why don't you expound on uh on that last phase and then uh we'll uh we'll wrap things up today yeah, appreciate the opportunity to do it again, guys. You know, we kind of went through phase one, through phase five. Phase six is really, you know, you're at the very tail end of your practice, hopefully by your own choice, you know, not uh, by circumstances. And it's time to, you know, really start dialing in that process. We've been working through phase five. It's cleaned up. It's ready to go. So now it's trying to maximize the value of that. And, and you have your uh, disposition event. And then you hopefully have some capital and, and you figure out how to put it to work and how to continue to support the lifestyle you want after your practice. So that phase tends to be a little bit more tax driven, Rob. You know, it, it tends to be more about investments. And we don't do investment advising. We do a lot with the alternative space and kind of understand how that all works. So, you know, we tend to deal with, with some high net income individuals who have sold their practice and moved on. And really, it's more of a tax engagement. So you know, our minds is how do we help them? continue to live that life out now that they've uh, you know, they've moved on from their practice. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, good stuff, uh, guys. It was uh, awesome to uh, have you today and chat about a subject. Obviously, it is very uh, near and dear to our four hearts. Uh, and uh, hopefully everybody got a lot out of this and, you know, think about those six phases and really uh, get people involved to help you and yeah. realize that there are people that are out trying to help you or not trying to just take advantage of you. 
um, you know, and surround yourself with those people and you'll set yourself well, uh, set yourself up well for, for future success. So, um, Jarrett, tell us how can people learn more about Duckett and Ladd and uh, how can they get in touch with you guys if they want to? Yeah, for sure. So the easiest way is just go to our website, DuckettLadd.com. You know, you can also follow us on Facebook, YouTube. We try to put out relevant content to just really help dentists um, get better, plain and simple. Just want to help dentists get better and maximize their practice wherever they're at in their journey. So um, that's the easiest way to get with us. And uh, email addresses and everything, contact info is on the website, of course. Yep, everything's right there. And the URL again? DuckettLadd.com. Easy to two remember. Two T's, two D's. Two T's, two D's. Easy to remember. Good. Well, thanks, guys. Good thanks, talking. Guys. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. It's great having the uh, Duckin and Lad team on Batman and Robin, yeah, so I like to speak. It. Right? I, always, I always call you guys the periodontist of the transition space, and they're like the endodontist. They focus on this very specific thing with with money, but also then add insight on the whole thing. You know, endodontist, if you want to be a dentist for a 60 seconds, Rob, they, they do the root canal portion, but they also add insight on the total health of the tooth, and they kind of do the same thing for transitions. Yeah, and then I think... You know, with as with most relationships, you get out what you put in, you know, and if you get guys like that involved at early stages, they can help you know guide you through the process, tell you what questions you should be asking, what information you should be receiving and yeah. give you advice as to what whether realistically this is the right thing for you. And uh, we've talked about this, but it's been a while. You know, if you get people involved you know, at later stages, they could still help. But sometimes you don't get as much help as you may have otherwise. Right. Gotten. It's all that you know, the barn doors closed with the horse out of it, right? So it's, you know, I always say like the grandmother not to advice. Good advice is never expensive, but not asking for advice can cost you a lot. I'm going to put that on the thing. We're ending on that note. <laughs> yeah. It's good to see you, Amigo. Stay well. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with the Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on the dentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.